This is Coda Radio, episode 496 for December 12th, 2022. Hello, friend, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and a business, a software development, and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and sitting there like the podcast warrior marching his way to 500 episodes, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Guten Morgen. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Do you uh, notice anything different about me? Maybe it's the uh, sound of my keyboard. It's a little more muted, a little quieter now. I actually thought you got a little heavy, to be honest with you. <laughs> See what I, did I did. And I added a 10 key as well Ooh. for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been trying out the new System76 Launch Heavy Keyboard, which is their bigger keyboard, filling out the range now. So now they've got the original, which is the smaller one, the one I have in the studio. Actually, it's not even the smallest anymore. Then they have a tinier one. So they have a small, I guess a regular, mine's the regular now all of a sudden. They got a regular, a really small, and the heavy. And I'm holding the heavy right now, and I missed having a 10 key, I have to say. It has been nice having the 10 key. I think I didn't quite get the right keycaps. This is a review unit, so if I bought one myself, I'd I'd go for the purple ones myself. I think these have, uh, these have they look like maybe brown to me. So there you go. I'm, I'm again, I, I know I sound like such a noob when it comes to keyboards, but I've been actually writing on it now for about three weeks, three and a half weeks and uh, just giving it a good go. So I'll, I'll uh, share thoughts maybe in the next week's episode. I'm going to, cause I, I just had them swap it out for a slightly different set of keycaps. And I want to use that for another week. And then I think I'm, I want to talk about it in the show with you because, you know, I'm always looking at this stuff from like an RSI perspective and typing for hours and hand comfort. I've become a convert on spending good money on a keyboard if it gets you good results, especially a keyboard that could last you a decade. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Have you, have you thought about it? Have you looked at the heavy? Uh, yeah. So I'm not a 10, 10 key kind of guy. So I'm just rocking my uh, regular launch. I don't know. I feel like the regular one was was the kind of perfect size for me. Sure. I, I like the USB hub. Uh, I did get a review unit of the light, which is the itty bitty one. But I don't know. I'm pretty happy. And like, I mean, this thing's metal, right? So this thing is going to last yeah. quite a long time. It, it Apparently mine is the special liquid resistant edition. Don't know why they would send me that. <laughs> Can't imagine why. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, good. That's a thing, huh? You should have that. That's a that's a good idea for you. That's a good safety to have. Well, for 500, I thought we were doing a sippy cup, right? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a bib to go with it for your, to protect your rope. Yeah. <laughs> You do want something, you don't want to, you know, you want that robe to last. True. Yeah. And you can swap out a keyboard, but a robe, that's a, that's a precious item. Yeah. I think the smaller, or I guess now it's the regular size. I'm sorry. It's the right size for the studio. I, I type out IP addresses just enough that man, is it nice? It is so much nicer. Rap a tat tat and add an IP address on a 10 key than it is on the top row of the top row. It's like, I go to hunt and peck mode every single time. Right. But the 10 key. Man, I can do that in my sleep. I, 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 I've, I can just blast through a 10 key. So I really liked having that on my desktop upstairs. We write LAN, you know, it's a, because we have to like go and do all this research and get these dates and get names. And so there's a lot of writing for LAN. So we'll script some parts out, mostly as talking points. But I get in on a Wednesday morning and I start typing, writing it, you know, usually the night before I'll do a little bit. So I'll spend three hours or so the day before. And then Wednesday I'll get in around 6 a.m. 
And I generally write until about 10, 30, 11, and then we do the show. And, you know, it's taking like all these different information and notes that we've collected over the week and just writing and writing. And I was getting horrendous RSI. So uh, the launch came at just the right time, the heavy. So I put it in and I've had it in for the last three weeks. And I want to use it with another set of keycaps and I'll, I'll report back next week. But we have a little bit of feedback to get into, Mr. Dominic, if you, if you do dare. Well, five, as I call him, is calling me out this week. Calling me out. I have, I have not properly served you, sir, as a co-host. He writes, Uh-oh. I'm writing this from a NixOS install media since I did something stupid and had to run Butterfast Restore. <laughs> the beauty is, though, that even though I hose my partition, my, my data appears to be intact. Anyways, I digress. Chris, I'm disappointed in you. Ooh. You didn't mention to Mike about NixShell. I've been using Pi Environment, and I find NixShell to be more natural. It works for any program language you can imagine. If you write a shell.nix file, the environment can be created again with about as many features as you can imagine. Invoking NixShell, Python 3 packages, Boto 3, and then saying Python 3 package requests allows me to work on any random AWS project for work, as an example. And when I'm done... I kill the shell and there's no massive dependencies left behind. It works with Python in different versions. You can specify the exact version you want. You get a true one-to-one environment. No crazy containers needed. You know, I've, I, you know I'm not trying, you know, five, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to convert, convert Mike to NixOS. You know, if he's got a system that works for him and he's getting the work done, I'm not really going to try to convince him to switch. You know, you're right. I should mention it so the audience knows that one of the reasons developers are going crazy about Nix is you can just invoke a Nix shell, tell it the packages you want to exist in that shell, and it just stands up that environment immediately, basically, pulls it all down, stands up the environment with that whatever versions you want, and that environment exists until you exit, and then it's just ephemeral and it goes away. And that is a super powerful thing because sometimes you want to use a whole set of packages for like one project and you don't want to mess up your entire rig. That's where Nix can be really powerful, sort of like in a container that way, but everything's installed locally. It's all being managed with the native package tools. Oh, that's pretty nifty. It is nifty. It is. It, exactly. I don't think it's worth like upending your entire workflow. Nifty, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with my pop and my my snow leopard. Of course. And your adium. Don't forget. Your Adium check. Oh, poor Adium. Having troubles with Adium. Uh, yeah, I upgraded to Ventura. Oh, that's about as far from Snow Leopard as you're going to get. You know, at least Ventura hasn't been a train wreck. And yet, much like the universe, the distance from the center that is Snow Leopard is always getting greater. Yes. All right, Jacob has a real stumper because he wants us to be positive. He says, what was the last app or what is an app update that you guys get excited about? Like, for example, Pixelmator Pro for the Mac just got an update. It's very exciting. DaVinci Resolve is coming to the iPad. The full Affinity Suite is available now for the iPad. And Zero AD just released a new version. I just get super excited when these apps get updated. But I'm not a developer. For you guys, what type of apps, of any, do you get excited about? What's the threshold of new features and improvements that need to happen in order for you to get excited? Also, each year, we spend time around the holidays and my family playing Zero AD creates a lot of fun memories with the game yeah zero ad is just getting better and better it's kind of like a, a game inspired by age of empires but open source and just getting better and better over the years kind of an amazing story so is there a piece of software you get excited about like i i recall back in the day getting excited about new os releases even linux ones because i had to go get the box of seuss and 
or a new version of Mac OS or a new version of even Windows was exciting because it was, you know, only five every five years with Windows for a bit. Mac OS was like every couple of years. So when I think of software today that I get excited about, I started to draw a blank and I, I wondered, would you be able to name anything? Can you? If I can cheat and name games, sure. But I don't think that's the spirit of the question. I know, right? Like uh, OS upgrades are horrible, particularly Mac ones. I mean, okay, you know, there is one. There is one. VS Code, actually. Sure. I have found most VS Code updates to not only not screw up my workflow, which is great, but really do bring quality of life. Sometimes it's the little things, but it's it's a tool. I basically live in VS Code all day long, right? So it's, yeah, it's important to me. I mean, I am trying out, its name I can't remember, the uh, the Lunar, oh my God, Lunar, it's based on NeoVim. Okay. I can't remember it, but Lunar. It'll come to us after the show. It always yeah. Happens. All these things have crazy names. Lunar Vim. That was, it was simpler than I thought. <laughs> but I'm going to have okay. more on that next week. It's, you know, it's very nice. Wow. I sound like I hate all software. See, the problem is like Mac updates are a pain in the butt. I, I guess I do get excited for pop updates, but it's, it's not something I'm like, Ooh, day one, let me do it. This is fun. I'm a little cautious. This is what I was thinking is I do get excited about new versions of GNOME or Plasma. I do get excited about new Pop! OS releases. Like I'm very nerdy that way. I would even legitimately be excited about like a new release of VLC or MPV a little bit. You know, it would kind of be on the excited spectrum. But there was a time like when the iPhone was new where I, I stood in line a couple of times, you know, back when people did that and they stayed in line all night. I did it at least once or twice just to do it. And I even made it on the local news once because I decided to go in my robe and just set up and be comfortable. And uh, I guess it must have been during decent weather. And I don't do that kind of thing anymore. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think that it's changing, shifting for me a bit, but there is still some things out there. I bet I'm missing some. And if the audience has any suggestions, coder.show slash contact or boost it in with a new podcast app. Hey, I am excited about the Tuxies and I want to mention the Tuxies. Uh, need votes because we're recording next weekend. So if you go to tuxies.party right now, it's only like six questions or if even that, and it won't take you but a minute to go through and give us your take on the best text editor of the year, Linux desktop distro, Linux server distro, desktop environment, best self-hosted app of the year, Linux hardware of the year, open source project, and best newcomer project. We just want your votes on that and we're going to put it all together and it'll be in the tuxies that probably comes out right around or on Christmas for Linux Unplugged. And so we, we need to get as many votes as possible. So when you're hearing this on Wednesday, if you, if you were listening to it around release, you got like three days to vote. So please go out there and vote. And if you're listening live right now, just open up a tab and go to tuxies.party and uh, give us a vote because we want to collect as much data. And I felt like last year I underrepresented the Coder radio audience and some of that stuff. So I wanted to be sure I mentioned it to you guys. I'm going to try to mention it earlier next year. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account. And that's a great way to support the show, too. Linode is fast, reliable cloud hosting. You really should try it. It's what we use for everything we've built in the last few years. And yeah, I've shopped around. I've shopped around and I come back to Linode every single time, especially with all the upgrades they've done and the trajectory they have. And then you combine that with their nearly 19-year solid track record, the incredible uptime and support that we've got, but also 
I've got so many people out in the community that are amplifying that experience. You know, they're sending me feedback on their Linode experience, on their customer support experiences and performance and what they've built. And we've collected years now of positive input from our audience as well. So I can really say with a lot of confidence, you're going to love it. And you'll love the services Linode has as well. I really probably could make a whole read just on the object storage stuff. We've integrated Linode's S3 compatible object storage with NextCloud, with PeerTube, with our backup for the systems we have here at the studio. They back up to Linode object storage. It's it's so fantastic. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block traffic at the network level so that bad traffic never hits your rig. And with 11 data centers to choose from today and another dozen coming online next year, and then on top of that, they've got micro data centers they're going to be rolling out. They have so many locations. They have great spots, so you can really pick the best location for you, your clients, your customers, etc. And since they've been doing this for so long, you know they're going to do a great job. They're going to keep it running. You know your systems are going to be under good hands, under good management, being taken care of by professionals. You just have that peace of mind with Linode. And since I run my business infrastructure up there, I appreciate that. But I also run a couple of gaming servers. I currently have two systems up there that run gaming servers for my kids. And I don't want to have to, you know, play tech support on the weekends. They just run solid. It's so great. Go try it out for yourself and get $100 while you support the show. You go to linode.com slash coder. Check out the UI. Also, I recommend you check out their API and their docs. Then you can really take things up to the next level. Get the command line client installed on your local machine and on your Linodes. It really gives you like, like almost like beta Z telepathic powers, you know, like how Spock can mind meld with the server. Okay, so now I'm switching to alien races, but you know what I'm getting at. It's that powerful. It's like Spock's mind meld and Mama Troy's mental abilities, at least on a good day, all put into one dashboard and API. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know why you got to go check it out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should go check it out so you can learn. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. Well, the Twitter blue is back. Returns now, but with a higher price for iPhone users. The company says subscribers will get access to the blue profile checkmark, along with a number of features, including the ability to edit tweets, upload 1080p videos, and access reader mode. The company lists fewer ads and prioritization in search and prioritization in replies as coming soon. And you'll recall they paused this program when people started signing up and getting the blue check mark and just using <laughs> any brand or <laughs> name they wanted. <laughs> and they had to put that on pause. Mm, can't imagine why. Yeah. So the interesting thing uh, here for all my fellow iOS uh, sharecroppers is that you'll recall not so long ago, this would have gotten you kicked right out of the app store, having a higher price on iOS for the same product. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just to play the side of it. What if that's what the whole Apple's going to kick us off thing was about? He gets a meeting with Tim Apple. And when he's walking around the pond, he gets old Timmy to not only be okay with not kicking them out, but also saying, Hey, this is why I got to do this. Do you understand? And, you know, it's better for Timmy because now, now, you know, Musk won't be making a big stink about it on his personal grievance platform. I don't think it was because I did some sleuthing around the Apple developer guidelines. And this clause was removed quite some time ago. Oh. And other apps, uh, one of my favorites, Audible, 
you'll notice usually if you go to audible.com, there's always like a quote sale, which happens to always be the same price than what you would see if you paid for the three credit bundle uh, for audiobooks and iOS. So it seems like this policy was changed. Now, you still can't link to the external payment, right, which is interesting. But there's no more language that I could find in that top heading section three, which deals with all the in-app purchase and all the app store stuff regarding having the same price, which very famously it used to be that you could not offer a lower price outside of their store. Is a $3 Delta, though, fair? I could see a $1.50, you know, two bucks if you had to. Because, I mean, this is monthly, man. It's like it's every single month. That's going to add up. It's going to add up. I think people who really like this will, Twitter Blue will like it. I will say it has not been as effective as I would have liked it to be. Hence me trying out Mastodon. I don't know. I, I kind of like to use like PayPal and stuff like Apple for my subscriptions and my apps just because I don't like giving my actual credit card number too much. This, I've had it stolen once. And it's way easier to cancel. Let's be real. Like some of these services make it very hard. It's like their whole their actual business model is just preventing you from canceling your subscription. Yeah, to, to me, the concern would be it, it's, it's insane to say, but it's just given the economics of the app store, an $11 a month subscription is kind of a lot. And since they have basically neutered the blue check marks, you know, by like they tell you if this is someone that they gave a blue check mark to because they're quote unquote notable versus you just bought one. I'm not really sure that on its face, this is, you know, relative to iOS apps, right? What they can charge a month that this is a good value. I, I agree. The subscription is not a good value. The ability to edit tweets should not be behind a paywall. Well, yeah, typos exist, right? I'm just, I'm just saying, right? It's, yeah, and honestly, people have just kind of accepted it as a limitation of the platform. The two-tiered checkmark system really creates a three-tiered class system on Twitter. I think that's a mistake, and people are going to pay for the privilege. I think that's kind of funny. I'll tell you where I could see it working for you and where I would maybe also consider it and where I think a lot of other people would consider it is the feature they haven't added yet, which is ironic because it's the only one really worth paying for. And that is prioritization in search and replies. You could make a business argument why you might like that. Right. The See, I guess I'm a little gun shy now. And I jumped right on Twitter blue when it came out. Right. It seems like Uncle Elon has a habit of making grandiose statements about features. And then he goes to the project management whiteboard and waters them down dramatically. Or reality does. Or reality does. Right. And also... It depends on how many people that I would like to market to are actually on Twitter at that point. Because my feed is basically a dumpster fire at this point. Just people endlessly bitching about, uh, well, weirdly bitching about Twitter on Twitter, which is kind of very meta. Although some of them are complaining about meta. See what I did there? Uh, actually, my favorite, and this was... I was laughing about this last night because I, I checked Twitter after I recorded LUP and Wes was still here. And I said, Wes, come over and look at this. And I had several tweets in a row of well-off tech people, you know, that have done tech for 20 years or something, making good money, who own Teslas and are complaining about owning their Tesla and complaining about Elon on Twitter. Think about that for a moment. They bought an $80,000 car that they're complaining about, which is the height of privilege. And then they're doing it 
on Elon's other platform while they're also complaining about how Elon leads to a company that has poor quality standards, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's the irony is remarkable there. And, you know, they're drying their tears with all of their money. But it, it to me, I look at that and I think people have completely lost base. They've just completely been detached from reality. Yeah, it, it's the whole situation is getting kind of ridiculous. And I've sort of avoided the online fight about it because I, I kind of don't know that the political stuff really matters more than, let's say, the $32 billion hole that needs to be filled. So I know I sound like a broken record, but that's yeah. Here's the thing, because no, I think this is a fair point. I've been thinking about this, and I think where you might be missing is Elon has stated in a staff meeting that was leaked that his long-term goal is to turn Twitter into like a a financial platform for users, sort of a, a PayPal and a Stripe all wrapped up into one, where he sees everybody like settling, uh, you know, a meal that people have to split. Well, like a WeChat almost. Like an American WeChat. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so he sees it turning into a financial services platform that's getting a cut of every transaction. So maybe that meeting with Uncle Tim went really well. And it was like, what a great idea. Be in the middle of everything. Collect 30%. What? No, this is, I believe this was a meeting before that. A staff meeting at Twitter. Yeah. I'm just being difficult. Okay. All right. So you roll out a membership program. You roll out some advertising. And I mean, or you try to keep some, you claw onto what you could keep. And you turn it into a financial services platform and you fire 75% of the staff. So it's significantly cheaper to operate. I mean, maybe you're starting to get there, especially if you could bring somebody in who could actually close the gap. And, you know, I, in other words, not Elon. Well, I mean, we, so there's a bunch of questions there, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think it's going to be tough to build that platform because you somehow have to disintermediate the Apples and Twitlessrix and Googles of the world. I think Apple, who in a weird way has something like that, if you're really into the iOS ecosystem, right? They have your payments. They have, I mean, you can go to my local grocery store and just pay with your phone through uh, Apple Wallet. So, and I think, I think that's very common now. Also, if he was trying to build a universal platform, he needs to stop like getting up at two in the morning and just enraging the liberals because there are half the country. Right. So this is what I was going to ask you is like, it doesn't matter what he does if he's completely destroyed the media narrative around him and he's become the villain of the country. There is a line that you just don't have to cross. And, you know, like if you wanted to meet people halfway, you wouldn't cross. And he's so clearly beyond the point of willing to meet people halfway. He just wants to inflame. And just like Trump, that works. And it it really just creates this massive pushback. On December 11th at 2.58 a.m. in the morning, he tweets, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci. And he's essentially touching the third rail of several communities at once with that. He says later in the thread that this tweet will make sense after the next batch of Twitter files comes out. But I doubt that. I doubt it will justify that because in the meantime, this is licensed to call him, you know, an alt-right provocateur or something like that, right? Like people can go crazy. He tweeted at 425 a.m. the next day on December 12th, the woke mind virus is either defeated or nothing else matters. Like when is this guy sleeping and why is he even tweeting this in the first place? Like I get that he's at a company 
and he's going through an experience that is probably pretty unique with a set of staff that are probably fairly intense into this stuff. And so he's in the thick of it. Well, yeah, a guy he fired immediately wrote a New York Times op-ed about like how awesome he and the people that got fired were and how much Elon sucks. Right. It was kind of right. And well, and a whole bunch of them go on these Twitter tirades, uh, which make them just look completely unprofessional. And in my book, basically make them a mark to avoid for hiring, because if you ever review their social feed before you hire them, you'll see what they do if you ever fire them. So that basically makes them a non-hire. That's right. Yeah. I think the point you've been making, I besides the money thing, because I could see him turning around the money thing. He seems to be a he seems to make that work for himself. But it's this other aspect that he's destroying, this sort of public trust aspect that he's destroying. And I, I could see I could see taking a bold stand for stuff that you've got receipts for that you can back up with documents that inevitably work out to be true. But then he's tweeting stuff like prosecute Fauci or the woke mind virus stuff. And yeah, sure. But maybe a lot of people agree with that. I'm not making a judgment call on the statement. I'm saying implicitly what it does is it provokes. It's a clear attempt to provoke. And the only conclusion I could make is that he's desperately attempting to keep traffic up. He's definitely he's desperately attempting to drive in clicks to keep the buzz going. He's essentially playing the Trump 2016 election strategy, but he's playing it to keep Twitter alive and, and keep Twitter buzzing. He's just constantly saying things, whatever he can, to stay in the media. And what makes it work is that some of the stuff he's saying, he can actually back up with documents. And some of the stuff he's fighting against, like that full management bureaucratic class that has just clogged up all of tech, that's a cause some of us are here for. But when he does this, it's like you can't get behind a guy that does this because He's he's not only taking the necessary fire, but he's like jumping in front of other firing squads that he didn't even need to. And he's taking on more attacks and more damage, and he's getting more condemnation from more places. They all get to get together in a big choir now and proclaim that he's the devil. See, this is yeah, this is where you and I don't necessarily agree, right? I don't think it's 3D chess. I think the timestamps speak for themselves. Oh no, I agree with you. I don't think this is 3D chess here. No. He's just drunk, right? Or stoned or whatever. I, I think maybe his his some of his firing and his leaking of documents and his, you know, buzzing it up and that's you know, he's playing games there that might be kind of savvy. But this is just out of control. This is what got him in this trouble in the first place, buying Twitter. It's this behavior right here. This is what got Roseanne. Which he fought pretty hard to to get the hell out of. I just like remember that, right? He was trying to get out of it. And I mean, I could definitely, I can't even imagine how stressful this must be, right? He's running a company that he wildly overpaid for uh, with a staff that is basically openly, I mean, not basically, they're openly hostile to him. And they didn't want him in the first place while also running companies that are on the edge themselves consistently, right? Tesla's doing better these days, but... It wasn't a good business either, right? It's, it, there's so much wrong with this deal. I The political stuff, the crazy, loaded, two, four o'clock in the morning tweets, I don't even know what to say about that. I, I just, I really write them off as he's like lit or loaded or something like that. But just the, the pure business case, and, you know, he goes and says he's going to start suing his employees... If it was a good business, I don't honestly, if it was a good money making, not Twitter business, he never would have been able to buy it. Good point. Yeah, it's just I don't know. To me, you know, you bought a sick horse. You can say what you want. You can put on a, a nice Napoleon uniform or 
or you know lord whatever but you're still going to lose because the horse is sick it's not going to get you where you need to go no i think it's like a it's like some sort of like devil uniform or something it's dark stuff his profile picture <laughs> here's where i kind of see a common theme the fauci stuff the woke stuff the biden laptop stuff the people that have been banned it all has a common theme of suppression of speech of moderation of speech of censorship in some way and all of it seems to be at a core he has an issue with how manipulated the narrative and speech and all of that has become online. Yes, Twitter is a private company and they have the right to moderate the platform to be any product they want. That's my thought. On it, and I, that's why I don't like the product. But he saw it as something different. He saw it as the town square of the modern era. And I think when you look at what he's been keen into, I think he believes that if these things hadn't been suppressed, if some of this information hadn't been suppressed, then maybe our kids wouldn't have been kept out of school for as long as they had. Or maybe we could have had a more honest discussion about which, which masks work and which ones are ineffective. Like, I'm not even kidding you. There was a 25-mile-per-hour windstorm, and uh, this guy was up on a bridge. It's called Deception Pass. You can look it up. This is an, it's a beautiful place. And he's wearing a paper mask on Deception Pass in a 15-mile-per-hour windstorm. There's just no science that backs that up. We've, but we never were allowed to have that conversation and talk about what kind of masking is actually effective. And the lockdowns, they perpetuated because the voices were silenced. Like the Twitter files didn't surprise anybody. But what they did show us is, you know, like Stanford professors who had dissenting opinions on some of this stuff. They were suppressed on Twitter. Do there was doctors that were tweeting about how they disagreed with what was going on, or it's time to reevaluate some of these ideas a year in, and they were suppressed. And the common theme in all of this, when it comes to the Fauci stuff or all of it, is suppression of information is bad. And ultimately, he seems to be a free speech absolutist who thinks the best disinfectant is daylight. And so you put all the information on the table, and then people can have an intellectual discussion and figure out what works. I don't know if that's true or not. I can tell you what we did for the last three years for COVID hasn't and that COVID's going around my community like crazy right now. And we still haven't figured it out. And it just doesn't seem like suppressing the information did any good at all. Kicking Trump off Twitter changed nothing. Suppressing the information about lockdowns, masking and vaccines did nothing. It was all for naught. And I think he comes from the position of we've got to change that. And even these drunk, loaded tweets at two and four in the morning have that theme running through them. Uh, he may believe that, right? My my basic premise is that this is a very stupid distraction for a very talented engineer who should be working on engineering stuff like, I don't know, going to space. The man single handedly forced GM and Ford and the rest of the auto industry to take EVs seriously or just taking a couple hours off. Well, right. Go, go, go to the beach. I don't know. I don't know what the guy does in his free time other than hang out with uh, uh, Ari, whatever, in that weird picture. But hey, yeah, I just. We'll see. Right. You, you could be right and there could be 3D chess and he could pull it off. Our other thing is if you're right and the money machine goes burr again, well, that's going to make pulling it off a lot easier. Yeah. Although he's going to have to wait a bit, I think. I think they're going to raise rates again. I think we're in. The, I think we're in this for a couple of years. That's so I'm, I don't know. A couple of years would probably be the longest I'd see it. I think we're definitely going to see probably some more rate hike. 
I think maybe an, even maybe another 50 basis points. I think people are expecting 25. I could see that, but I could also see 50. And then I think we'll see a series of 25 basis point increases because that's how they ramped us into it. I was just looking at a news story from November of last year. So just over a year ago, the Fed was signaling a couple of rate hikes next year. A couple was the quote. And (laughs) I laughed at that. It was such a different time. The money was flowing. And, you know, I, I could see them now kind of ramping it down and kind of just staying with that, trying to hold that while also trying to bring inflation down and hoping the two meet in the middle. The thing they have going for them is we're about to hit a world recession that we've never seen in our lifetimes. BlackRock just said that, and they also said there's no tooling to get out. The Bank of England said that the deepest recession they've seen is coming. Like, we have serious, serious recession. I mean, if you notice, the gas prices are going down. Yeah. Well, guess why? Demand is down. Guess why demand is down? Because we're entering in a worldwide recession. That's why. (laughs) That's great, everybody. And, uh, you know, so that, that means, though, that the supply chain, We'll probably get a bit of a breather because demand will go down. So while the Fed is raising rates uh, and the supply chain has demand lessen and energy prices, at least gasoline, come down, uh, hopefully diesel, too, um, then I think the Fed might, might be able to land it in the middle. We'll see. I think the question that still remains is how bad of a recession do we have to go through to get there? And that I just don't know. We don't know yet. It's it's going to be rough. That's my thinking. I, I It's going to be pretty bad. So do you think uh, your buddy Tim Sweeney is playing the 3D chess over there because he didn't win against Apple in the court with his case over Fortnite and the epic battle, but he's been buddying up big time to lawmakers in Congress, and he's really pushing hard for this Open Apps Markets Act, and he's trying to get it through before the end of the year. Uh, And this act basically says that companies that operate an app store with more than 50 million U.S. users shouldn't engage in certain potentially anti-competitive behaviors that include requiring developers to use the company's in-app payment system, penalizing a developer for offering better prices outside the app store, restricting developers from directly contacting customers with business offers. It also cannot prevent uh, using private analytics data from third parties mm. Mm. and uh, unreasonably preferencing its own apps in the search results is also not allowed. Uh, that last one will keep the lawyers busy forever because what is unreasonable? Yeah. Uh, if the company that owns an app store also controls the underlying operating system, uh, in what case might that be? Uh, it also has to make it easy for users to perform the following tasks. Install third-party apps without using an app store. Choose third-party apps and app stores as defaults. Uninstall or hide pre-installed apps. I mean, I don't mind any of that. I'd even think it's worth the security ramifications because if we honestly think about it just for a moment, how wild is it that we buy a $1,000 plus computer that we do not get administrative access to? Yeah, it's pretty bad, right? That they could just, uh, for for instance, disable AirDrop because, uh, you know, someone says so in China, right? So the idea is push this Open App Markets Act through and uh, fight Apple via the state since he couldn't do it in court uh, with the lawyers. But, of course, Apple and Google have their own lobbying arms, and Sweeney has said that they're lobbying like mad right now to prevent this. They just want to push it out as far as possible. Do you think it could work? Uh, No. (laughs) Just like that, huh? Nah. Yeah, I agree, right? Like, Apple and Google have a well-oiled machine They've been preventing this kind of stuff for years already, no doubt. Yeah, it's... Okay, so 
Some of these are just outlandish and would never happen. Apple does not currently require you to use their payment mechanism, right? That's the thing that Japan got, and I think South Korea as well. But you still have to pay them 30%, which a federal court here in the U.S. said was totally lawful. So you're insane if you don't just use the Apple thing because now you have an audit liability to Apple where they get to audit your transactions should you choose to go that path. Now, none of that went into effect because, of course, appeals, blah, 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 injunctions, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, I would like a more open app store, as I've been saying since 2012. But let's be honest, Tim Sweeney just wants to do his own uh, his own store, right, on the app store. He wants to do the Epic Games store on there, on iPad. Oh, yeah. If he, he's willing to fight for the Open App Markets Act, even though he's got no app store himself today on a mobile device, well, except, you know, he would, right? That's exactly, you know, they've already got it built. He would. I mean, he, they, there's probably some repo somewhere where they've been working on it, right? Well, they shipped, they kind of shipped the early version in iOS, which in the iOS app, which is what triggered all of this way back to begin with. The big fight about Fortnite. Yeah. I mean, my, my problem with this is it seems rather divorced from reality. So you have now Congress is flipping, right? The House is going to be Republican controlled. They also don't like big tech, but they have a different set of concerns. And the Democrats aren't even unified on this, right? You have some very loud voices, Amy Klobuchar, Lady Elizabeth Warren, folks like that. And I'm sympathetic to those arguments. Don't get me wrong. Having been on the app, worked on the app store for years, I just, this is such a, a huge remedy that I don't see it happening. Yeah, it reads as a wish list. It reads almost as my wish list of things I would like to see. Right. Like, I could see some of it. Like, maybe Apple has to, like, sell Final Cut at some point, right? Well, that would be nice. But, you know, that there really is a a problem here. I've, you know, Brother Michael, I've, my eyes have been opened. And I've seen a new reality. Tailscale.com slash coder. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. And you support the show while you're checking out a zero config mesh vpn that you'll get up and running on any device you got really <laughs> really within minutes you know people come up to me and they say chris what's your secret and i say tail scale i mean i don't know what secret they're asking but it's always tail scale tail scale is the secret sauce that i tell everybody it's the worst kept secret i have it's how i connect all my devices my vms my vps's my mobile devices in fact now that i'm on graphene os it's the only way I connect to my NextCloud. My NextCloud only listens on my TailScale network. TailScale is this brilliant system that gives you just enough backend infrastructure to get all your devices connected directly to each other, protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. Doesn't matter if you're separated by firewalls, subnets, that double NAT stuff. TailScale will navigate all of that seamlessly. It's super intelligent about how it routes traffic, so it's not sending everything over TailScale just the stuff to that network. Although I mean, you can actually tweak those things, but by default, that's so nice because I can leave TailScale on 24-7 and it's not sending all of my internet traffic over the TailScale VPN. And TailScale SSH allows you to establish SSH connections between your machines. TailScale Send is essentially like AirDrop for all your TailScale devices, including your Linux and Android devices. And they're rolling out TailScale's support for fast user switching this week get ready for this one this one's a noodle warper so you can now set 
nicknames for your accounts like a work account and a home account. And Tailscale has made it even easier to switch between those identities, switch between those networks without having to reauthenticate every time. Wow. I never even realized I wanted that. And now I'm going to use that every single day. Tailscale, you've done it once again. You've made something I love even better. And you can try it for free forever for up to 20 devices because the way they've built the Tailscale network, it is a sustainable implementation. In fact, they have blog posts on this too, which I highly recommend because I think it'll give you insights into how savvy these people, these folks are. Go read, go find the Tailscale blog, check out their post on a sustainable infrastructure, read that post and tell me you're not impressed by the people running this company. It's really something. Great product, great team, really, really big improvements to how I work. And you can have it for free for up to 20 devices and support the show. When you go to tailscale.com slash coder, that's tailscale.com slash coder. Now that I'm an Android user, Mike, and I use Graphene OS, and I like F-Droid as my preferred app store, it's really made me think how wild it is that these mobile platforms have become so critically important. They are the primary computing device for most Western citizens. And yet, like we said, you don't have admin access and you can't install outside their app store ecosystem. That to me seems so intensely wrong. Because if if the original computers had shipped with that limitation, there never would have been a software industry to begin with. And I, I wonder, thinking back over this last decade plus, what have we missed out on? Perhaps something great could have been developed outside of Apple's control that would have turned these phones into something truly powerful and new and innovative for end users, for people who spent $1,200 on these things. And, you know, we never saw it. Maybe there's something that could help the third world that get like get used phones that don't have the money and can't plug into a banking system to buy apps. Seventy percent of El Salvadorians don't have a bank account. It's go that number is improving today, but that's not an uncommon statistic in other parts of the world. We just don't think of it because in the Western world, everybody kind of gets a bank account before their twenties. But some places you never get a bank account and you can't participate in the app store then these phones become unavailable to you. It'd be really great if they unlocked them when they were done supporting them. So that way an open source community could come along and maintain an operating system. You know, like I'm, I I run Linux on like a 2011 or 2012 MacBook that Apple stopped shipping Mac OS for a couple of years ago. I still run Linux on it just fine. System still runs. I got a new battery in it about three years ago, four years ago. It's a great laptop today, but I have to run Linux, but I can't because they didn't lock down that platform as much, but the phones, they just started that way. And I think we've got to come about and do a bit of a correction. If these are really going to truly be the general computing platform of the future, we've got to solve this or else we are just in a world of hurt. Everybody's going to learn and live in a society where everything's controlled by an app store and Apple. And it's just, we can't go there. We have, I, I kind of hope Sweeney does it, but. I absolutely don't think it's going to happen. But hey, you can still use Tailscale to track all your machines. That's true. That's true. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about Dart. Yeah, I don't have a lot on this, but I, I I've been tracking this uh, type of feature in languages for a couple of years now, and Dart three has joined C Sharp, Swift, and many others in uh, adding null safety. And they're going a little hard. It's going to be the default in Dart three. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's going to be some breaking compatibility changes because of it. <laughs> it's going to break your shit. Yeah, there's a flag to turn it off, much like they did in C-sharp. I'm going to say 8, but I could be wrong. Someone will correct us in the comments. Uh, yeah, this I'm going to go on a limb here. And my good crustacean friends, get your claws ready. Time to do a claw snapping clap. <laughs> Another influence from the from the Rust community, right? Everybody we apparently care about safety now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big topic. I think it's also I think it's growing inside of Google. They have uh, released some statistics that show tremendous improvements with Android security vulnerabilities in the memory safe languages. In fact, they have yet to have any vulnerabilities reported in any of the memory safe code that they shipped starting in Android 12 and more so in 13. Yeah, it's it's Dart. Dart has been an interesting one for me. I still think it's weird that for Android, they went with Kotlin, not Dart, given that they own Dart. But it's not a bad language, and Flutter is pretty impressive. Isn't it Flutter the one that has to deal with Canonical? Mm, yeah. Right, to do the GUI stuff for uh, for Linux, that yeah, and, uh, obscure you know, operating I've been system. Seeing, I've been seeing a few more Flutter desktop apps pop up over the last half half year or so. I know. Like, my, my heart was all a Flutter when I opened one up. <laughs> it's starting. Maybe it's going to go somewhere. I don't know. For some reason, I feel I felt like it wouldn't. But I, I think what it failed at was its lofty promise to like replace JavaScript because JavaScript, much like Dracula, cannot be killed. <laughs> it's it's just coming back. Yeah. It's going to be Anthony Hopkins this time. Dracula 2000. That's what's happening. Get over it. So you want to take a, a few hits at Scrum? We had uh, a blog post posted this week about how Scrum has failed the developers what the uh, title is just a very mild sentiment yeah i mean i actually feel like it sort of fails to fully land the point it basically says that developers have been abused by scrum tactics and and scrum procedures and that scrum hasn't been used effectively they write in the post because people with power misuse scrum to add more pressure on developers the pressure of delivering items according to a plan every sprint having a crunch time every two weeks to ensure that they met external expectations. In the good old days of waterfall projects, teams had to deal with this less frequently, mostly at the end of the project. These days, many developers feel constant pressure to deliver. So essentially, his point is, is in the old days, we used to just kind of plot along, doing our work, and then we get towards the end and have all this crap that we still hadn't fixed or had problems with or scope creep, and then we had to cram super hard at the end to rush it all and finish it. And now he says, now I'm now I'm expected to just consistently deliver results. Well, guess what? Welcome to corporate development, buddy. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. But once you bring in a normie who doesn't write code, who has to manage people who write code, how do you think they're going to do it? Right. And if they want to meet their deadlines because they're on the hook for management commitments and they tell management we're going to have it for you by January. They're not going to want to do it where you just wait till the end and then you just cram like that's not going to work for them. And so, yeah, I guess you could claim that's an abuse of Scrum, but I I don't know. I just thought this guy's complaints were just a little off base there, like a little bit of like a developer not appreciating, you know, how management's job works and management not appreciating how a developer's job works. And then they finish it with instead of abandoning Scrum. The environment of the developers and their team should gain an understanding and appreciation of Scrum and how it's been intended. They should learn why Scrum exists and what problem it intends to solve. Well, sure. Wouldn't that be wonderful if everybody got educated on everything before they started doing it in the workplace? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and yet another very sad divorce from reality. <laughs> this is really, it's kind of the theme of today's show. I mean, of, 
you can replace Scrum with Agile or Kanban or won't trigger any Canadians here, but uh, event modeling, right? Name your a process that some manager possibly implemented poorly somewhere. And it's going to, of course, it's going to be bad. And also, sometimes I kind of sympathize with the non-techie. We got that email in last week, right? Saying, you know, some managers are non-techie and it's fine because they kind of know how to manage up and whatever. I, I have a little bit more sympathy for that than I did coming in because someone has to talk to the customer whether that customer is like internal muckety mucks vps or whatever or like in my case your actual clients or put it another way somebody's got to pay for it and somebody's got to communicate to the people paying for it right exactly in a way that they understand and are okay with right it can't be if you can't tell your customer you don't understand what's going on just you know here's a bill pay me go away right it's yeah. just it's kind of all like Again, I sort of read this. I'm like, I think the dude's heart's in the right place. But what he's really saying is estimating things is hard. Scrum does not making estimating necessarily better, which I think is true. Right. And consistently having to hit specific deadlines and consistently doing sprints, he feels, is just wiping and stressing developers out, which it probably is. It is, sure. But we get these posts in like every six months, right, where, where the answer is, I get it. I'm with you. But you can't just tell someone you have no idea how long or how much something is going to cost and that they have to just suck it up and we'll see when it's done. Right? You have to be able to have some sort of process that is transparent enough uh, and, and most importantly, I think, communicated in a way and the information shaped in a way that you know, the, the end client doesn't need to know about DHCP servers or if you're going to use NixOS for something on your dev station. They need to know when they're, you know, when they're, I don't know, their Mac mini servers are going to turn back on or something I'm looking at now. I'm setting up MDMs for somebody, right? When their MDMs are going to be fully operational. You know, developers make good money because it's hard <laughs> and hard things are hard. I, I, I know it's productive, but I, I can't estimate perfectly. I'm usually my solution to this is I just I've embraced the darkness that is Trello in my heart. <laughs> and I run basically depending on the client's, you know, burn rate and budget. I run, run one to two week sprints. This is what we think we'll do. Some people who are bigger, we just do ongoing because we're deploying just about every week or just even every couple of days. I actually did two deployments this weekend for the same job. And it's it's fine, right? You have to you have to fit things to shape. You know, if you have a, a big industrial client that needs like multiple applications and multiple things, yeah, of course it's gonna be a little more loose because you have so much going on. But if it's just an internal project for your company and you know, you see this all the time, especially around this time of year. The damn website needs to be updated by like now, right, for Christmas because they're doing some kind of holiday sale. Well, yeah, there is a hard deadline there. It was probably December 1st. I, I don't know what to say. What this brings up is one of the little, little interesting realities of dark matter devs or being a corporate developer. It is a tricky thing, and I think that's why, on average, they're paid well, because what this article is basically saying is you're screwing with my flow. You know, you're not letting me work my best work. But when you pop up the stack from the developer actually doing the work, 
to the professional management class that exists off of your work and communicates with the people paying the bills. That level, those levels, they view shipping the product on time as part of the overall product. They don't view like them as separate things so much. So hitting the deadline and having the feature ship, like having the website updated for the holiday special, that's all considered the same thing. Like you, you know, they don't break those things out into like in their mind. Right. So when they, when they commit to a certain amount of money and time, the reason why you're getting paid well is to actually hit those deadlines is to actually deliver on that, even though it's not an optimal condition. Now I'm not trying to excuse like development practices and processes that wreck your life and overworking people. I'm not sitting here doing that. Right. Of course. People telling you, you have to like sleep with the servers. Yeah, of course not. That's crazy. Right. No, I'm, I'm just saying, I, I acknowledge what this guy is saying and why it's, why it is hard. The only way I can see resolving it would be having a really just open dialogue between the PMC level and the developer level and just being able to have a frank conversation and say, you know, is there something where we can meet in the middle here? Is there some sort of compromise we can come to and how this process works versus how we work best? And then, you know, we start setting expectations going forward based on that. Like, that's how I would do it, right? Is I would completely screw it up the first time and it'd be a real hectic mess and we'd be way overworked and we'd be stressed out and we, but we'd nail our deadline and we'd all be like, wow, we did it. We got a win. But then I, the first thing I do, instead of saying, good job, everybody, we got a win. What I would do would be like, we're never doing it that way again. Here's how we're doing it next time. And then I would say, you know, we'll set the expectations up front. We'll communicate ahead of time. And I would figure it out that way. And that's just how a lot of us operate. So I guess this is your opportunity to kind of make that pivot and open that dialogue if you can. Well, and, and that's a that's a healthy approach, right? You you try things, you you iterate, you change. And you know, what was good a perfect example. Processes that made sense for doing, you know, bespoke Objective-C only iOS apps in 2010 or 2011 maybe don't make sense for larger scale enterprise software, which is mostly what I'm doing now, right? Cuz different set of priorities. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, w- I will say that one thing that I, I, I see a lot of, it used to be, and we'll use the old version to not tweak anybody's tail, the end stakeholders really don't care what testing uh, methodology, BDD, TDD, you know, are, are you using Selenium or using something else. And I think sometimes we get too much in our rabbit hole of, this is my cool new toy that I want to try, whatever, whatever it is, right? It could be Go, it could be Rust, it could be some testing methodology. Uh, I think about, you know, when we started this show a few years back, there was the the zealotry of the TDD people, right? Everything has to be TDD and this is my library for it and da-da-da-da-da. You suck if you don't do it. <laughs> yep. Now you could argue that there's a little bit of uh, crap stuff going on, maybe. You know, I'm just saying, don't don't pinch me. But, you know, they, ultimately you need to ship, right? And I'm pretty sure most customers, at least in my experience, would rather you ship on time or relatively close to it in something boring like a C Sharp or a Java or uh, or a Python even than in the hottest, newest stuff, but like double the timeline and the budget. Mike's old. That's the it's I, I you know, I, I drank my Earl Grey today and I'm thinking of shaving my head. I'm just feeling very. Very Picard, Picard, you know, from the new show. Yes, good. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm just, I'm yeah. just trying to chill on my chateau. Yeah. Right. And these kids keep 
telling me that I have to test everything in my house. I have to have a unit test for my toilet. My recommendation is uh, have a pass at your uh, your Romulan helper gal that lives with you. It's worth it. It'll work out. Uh, I think that is a, a good idea. <laughs> and look, it's one o'clock. Booster Gray. All right. So we got a couple of uh, boosts to get us out of here. Marchie boosted in with 9,001 sats. Woo. Nicely done, sir. <laughs> By the way, Marchie boosted in last week. He was our .NET developer. Uh, and I asked him, is it a new setup that you have? Is that like, you know, because they're all on Azure and using .NET and TypeScript. And I thought, that sounds like a kind of a more recent stack. He writes, well, following up from last show, yeah, we started from scratch about two years ago. So we went with the K8's.NET React route on Azure. And then rather than taking a shot with Blazor, is that how you say it? Probably saying that wrong because you know me. Yep, Blazor. Yeah, I, I, I believe it's Zamarian. Oh, God. Zamarian? What is it? Anything Microsoft you just can't pronounce? You hate them that much? <laughs> you have like a tick, you start shaking. Hey, man, never forget Balmer. Never forget Balmer. Oh, my God. Anyways, he says at the time it was just a couple years old. So uh, we opted for using JavaScript and React for the UI components uh, since it's just a more known quantity at the time. We still haven't had a chance to try out Blazor, but, or I'm sorry, was it Blazor? Maybe if we get time for a little project outside of work, I will. Nice, Margie. Thank you for the update. That's a great stack. So I, I guess, you know, the one thing I, you imply you're happy with it, but you talk about moving over to Blazor. So I wonder if, uh, are you actually happy with it? The Blazor is kind of the new sexiness that Microsoft is pushing. Yeah, I can see being drawn to that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I've been trying. It's 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 getting there. Can I tell you my secret Microsoft bias, though? You hate Bomber? Uh, well, there's that, but that's not so secret. No, I, I kind of have a secret bias that I think the Microsoft stack is like a, it's like a really nice looking Kia. You know, like it's got a lot of great specs. It's got a fantastic price, a seemingly good warranty. But then you drive it, and within about 5,000 miles, you start to have some issues. 10,000, 15,000, a year down the road or two, it's starting to burn oil. And you're just not super thrilled with the performance or how it's holding up. And, you know, you kind of wish maybe you just would have built something from scratch yourself all the way up and maybe have not gotten the Kia. Now, I could be wrong because, honestly, I don't have any Azure experience really of anything to speak of other than a few personal instances that I've played around with. Perhaps things are a lot better this day. But I'm putting that question out there to people who are building on stacks like Margie is. Have you found a few years into it, you start looking elsewhere and wishing you'd gone with another stack? Or could you see this lasting for a decade? I mean, I will say Azure runs Ubuntu and SUSE super well. Yeah, I guess you. Yeah, I, I guess I mean specifically the Microsoft technology stacks and not just running Linux on. Them. Oh, I don't think a lot of people are. Well, yeah, you mean like IIS. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, IIS and. Yeah, all of that. I mean, the, the thing I hear the most positive kind of consistent feedback from the audience is Azure Active Directory, Azure AD actually seems to be pretty solid. Like that sounds like people it's are like, less bad than a regular Active Directory. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Nacho Linux boosted in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Uh, they say, I 100% agree. Managers in the IT sphere should know some coding and scripting. You know, picture a manager blank face during a simple code review or during your year end review because they have zero code knowledge. And you know, Nacho, I was thinking about this. It'd be weird, like at a bank, right? If a teller had a bank manager that didn't know anything about banking, that seems, you know, or, or a bank manager was being, you know, managed by uh, an admin who didn't know anything about running a branch, right? Like you can see how it just, it doesn't make any sense. There needs to be some sort of expertise overlap. Uh, but at the same time, 
every trade and especially complex skilled trades that require a lot of deep domain knowledge, they have this dynamic they have to sort out. Uh, Nacho continues, you know, what about an IT director proclaiming in 2022, VLOOKUPS are the future? <laughs> that is our hell at work mm. when we have two out of 12 IT employees who are pushing for automation and the rest resist because it's just too hard. How are we supposed to level up when managers lack and demand some of these novel skill sets? Like they lack and demand a novel skill set. And so, yeah, you got like, I want to do automation. And you got a group of people saying, no, automation's too hard. And you got to just be banging your head against that. Because every time you have to do that repetitive task, it just makes you want to do the automation even more. <laughs> like, that's a bad spiral. Uh, I think it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while before this gets flushed out. It's going to be a long time. Like I said, my my bread and butter tends to be folks running access. So, yeah. I shouldn't say that. That's not the majority, but I've dealt with enough access in the last two years. Yeah, there's plenty out there still, for sure. There's plenty of like crazy stuff still going on. Uh, ultimately, time, though, right? Because the autom- particularly on the automation front for your infrastructure, the nice thing about containerization coupled with some just very simple, right, even like GitHub Actions automation, is outages become, most of the time, far easier to recover from. So that's definitely a feature that management should understand. Dave Jones, the pod sage, boosts in with 12,112 sats. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Uh, when you guys start doing your own RSS feeds, which we are working on internally right now, will you send live pod pings? Alex and I rolled out a new podping.cloud platform, so we're ready for you. Dave, I will try to get a hold of you maybe and try to get more info because I do want to participate in that because the pod ping system is a new way to notify podcasting 2.0 clients that a new episode's out. So instead of every podcast catcher in the world, hitting XML files on every podcaster's HTTP endpoint, wherever it happens to be, and then refreshing it constantly to see if there's a new, you know, pulling down that XML file just over and over again, looking for a new release like every 15 minutes or whatever your client does. Instead, it can just listen to PodPing and watch for the episodes that you subscribe to and get notified that way and then go get the update. So PodPing is a really cool idea. And yeah, I want to integrate it into our 2.0 RSS feeds. So we'll have to get more info from you how to do that, Dave. And then Mitch comes in with our last boost of the week. Mitch is the developer for one of the developers for Podverse with 10,000 sats saying, sending some sats and get well soon, Karma. So that way, uh, you know, those kids don't get us. Thank you. And Mitch, uh, the Podverse team has a new beta out of Podverse, which now has CarPlay. That is an open source GPL podcast player for Android, iOS and the web, which, of course, supports podcasting 2.0 and Boost. You may need to delete your old app and reinstall it to get the update. It's kind of a work in progress, so it's not fully performant yet. But if you want to beta test the new Podverse and try it out with CarPlay, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can give that a go. And um, also, we got a hundred sats from uh, Mount B Dude six four one who said he's a sysadmin in a .NET shop, and I want more details on that. So send us a future boost on that. Also, thank you to our members. CoderQA.co. You are our Coderly crew. The new Coderly is out. Get that. And you get the ad-free version of the show as a thank you. And if you'd like to sign up as a Jupiter Party member, you can upgrade. I made the end of year promo available for upgrades. Jupiter.party, promo code 2022. It'll take two bucks off the monthly membership. And then you get all the shows ad-free. If that's how you roll. Well, Mr. Dominic, we're coming to the end here. Uh, I don't know. Do you send people to Twitter anymore? 
Should we be linking to your Mastodon somewhere? Is that a thing you're using? You could do both, but yeah, I, I've been more on Mastodon, especially for all my Magic the Gathering shenanigans. Yeah, and Matrix. Which I know. I know everybody loves it. And Matrix. What are, oh, yeah, S. I, I forgot I had to post my... So this week... I'm sorry, Matrix people. Uh, I went even this week on Pioneer. So, okay, all right. I, I want a couple packs. No are you sending them like... Are you sending them coded messages via the pod now? Like, is that what's happening? <laughs> I'm just going to get abducted by the NSA now. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> All right. Coder.show slash Matrix for that. Um, I don't know. You can find me on Twitter, I guess. I don't use it much, but I'll, I'll try to reply at Chris LAS and at Coder Radio Show is the whole podcast. Uh, links to what we talked about today. That's what you're going to want. That's at Coder.show slash 496. You'll find our contact form over there. And I want to say, please send us in your feedback. See if we can stock a little bit up because we may have a pre-record coming up and we need to bank some of your feedback. So it's a special holiday feedback call. So get it in there. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you right back here next week.